Um, if at any time you're struggling, just do this. It's the internationally recognised sign for Speak Up. Um, we're going to read, actually. It's on the inside of your sheet. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to it in a Bible, because I'm going to read um, three verses before we get to the bit on our sheet, so you'll have an added benefit if you've got it in your Bible. Um, thank you for your introduction. I, I mentioned uh, last night there's a, a kind of personal connection, very strong personal connection for me and Josie in this church. We were here uh, for 10 years. I was just reflecting last night, um, there's a couple, John and Mel Fitton, who aren't uh, around today, but um, I know they were around at um, uh, Tom's coronation, enthronement, inauguration <laughs> um, ceremony. And uh, I remember when they first came to St. John's and they said, we've, they'd had a couple of bad experiences in different churches and they said, we've been looking for a church where there is truth and love and at last we've found somewhere that has it in abundance. And it is a lovely, crisp description of how I and lots of us have experienced St. John's, and it's, uh, it's lovely for us to dip in again and to experience uh, your, the truth and love that is so evident here. So thank you for having me, and let's look at the truth together. Um, I'm going to read the first three verses of Ecclesiastes 1, and then we'll skip to verse 12, which is on the inside of your sheets. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem... Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? I'm going to skip a few verses and down to verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem... And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. 
I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the, de- the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair and over all the toil of my labours under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, he can eat or he can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. And... It's a big block, this is going to be our longest session, but I'm hopeful that this will um, give us an intro into the theme of the whole book, if you can uh, grasp it and persist with it. Um, I'm aware... Have I got a clicker, Tom? Can I grab that? If you don't mind putting on another slide. I'm aware that the reputation of this book is that it tends to be gloomy and depressing. I actually talked to a number of folk... Um, last night about the fact that we're doing Ecclesiastes and I discovered there's also quite a different uh, number of readings of Ecclesiastes. People may have heard it preached in different places, come up with different conclusions. Um, I'm not going to go into all the different ways you can read it uh, up front but as 
we go through, I will show how I think is a sensible way to read it, and you may uh, come back at me, and we'll have Q&A times, I think there's some scheduled, this is the gloominess of Ecclesiastes behind me, Um, and there's chance for discussion. That's one of the great things about doing this on a weekend away, of course, is that there's lots of chance for back and forth and to chat about it, and it's something, it's a book that's there to be wrestled with. Um, If that is the impression that you have of the book right now, the Eeyore impression, um, I think this is going to be a great weekend for you. I've got good news for you, because what we have been discovering, we've we've preached it through um, at Grace Church in Greenwich, where I am quite slowly and carefully over a year, and what we've been discovering is that it's actually a very um, joyful, very liberating, very uplifting book. And uh, I mentioned last night, it's actually been a real game-changer for some of us in the congregation, including myself, in how we perceive the world. Uh, But it's liberating in the kind of a way that an intervention is liberating. Um, You may have come across interventions when somebody's stuck in an unhealthy pattern of living. Sometimes their friends have to get involved, confront them with some hard truths, some painful truths sometimes. But it's just a stage, because the ultimate aim of that kind of intervention is to lift them out of it and to free them to a better and freer way of living. And that is my prayer that we're going to discover with Ecclesiastes. Hard truths, but for greater benefit. And so let's get into it. It begins, and this was the the verses just before the bit on the sheet. Do you remember? The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then this famous phrase... Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanities. Even if you don't know anything about Ecclesiastes, it's likely that you have heard that phrase. It's the most famous line in the book. It actually tops and tails the preacher's words, both here and then again at the end, chapter 12, verse 8. And this word, it's translated in ESV, the translation we've got here, as vanity, it crops up, I think, 30 times in the book, and it's arguably the big theme of the book. And the word, uh, the Hebrew word, we don't have um, Chris, Tom is far beyond me in Hebrew scholarship, so any technical questions go to him. But the, the, the Hebrew word is hebel, and uh, sometimes it's actually very difficult to translate, I'm told. Um, NIV goes for the word meaningless. Meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher. I think that is a mistaken translation. I'm going to argue why I think that as we look through the book. That the, the preacher does not think that life is meaningless. In fact, he's busy persuading us throughout every chapter that some things in life are better than other things. And he's busy persuading us that because there is a God a God who is creator, a God who is judge, he definitely believes life has meaning. So literally, this word hebel means uh, mist, it means vapour. In fact, sometimes, uh, I didn't do it when I read it through, but I've got into, whenever I see the word vanity, just saying the word vapour, because it leaves open a kind of range of ideas. Uh, For example, we could have translated verse 2, mistiness, Mistiness, says the preacher. Everything is misty. You'll see on the, uh, the sheets I've entitled our weekend, Living in the Mist. And the reason I like mist or, or vapour is because it has different ideas within it. Uh, there's two particular ways, I think, 
Ecclesiastes says that life is misty. Uh, The first is that it's hard to grasp, it's hard to understand. A bit like mist, you know, you try and grab it and it just slips through your fingers. You You can't grasp it. And then the second way that life is like mist is that things don't last. Um, I wasn't up uh, doing a John Kennedy run this morning, but probably very early if you were up, um, there would have been you know, a coating of mist. And it doesn't last. And by lunchtime, certainly, it's always gone. Um, and th- that's the point here. Mists are gone by lunchtime. So much in life just doesn't last. It's temporary, it's fleeting. And so the big message of the book... And the preacher wants us to come to terms with this fact. Life is not neat, so it's not easily understood. And also life, so many things in life, are just temporary. They don't last. And he wants us to to confront us with the reality of the fact. Not just saying it, but pressing our noses into it. And helping us feel that reality. And then he wants us to step back and think, well, how do we live in that kind of world? How do we live wisely? How do we live humbly in the light of that fact? And uh, I read the opening question, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's the, the question that the book begins with. Does anything we do actually achieve something ultimately? And you get this question repeated again uh, on two separate occasions. And uh, we skipped a few verses, didn't we? 4 to 11. Uh, That was a poem. Uh, We've just done edited highlights because of time. But that poem basically says, it's quite negative. um, And it says, if you were to get the wide angle lens, and if you were to kind of fade out and see the whole world at once, and if you were managed to kind of see the whole of human history unfolding in fast forward beneath you, you know, those kind of, what are they called, freeze frame, you get to see everything in just one minute, you're up on the International Space Station looking down, and the poem says, yes, the generations come, the generations go, the empires come, the empires go, and there is apparent progress, it looks like something's happening, but if you look closely, nothing really new or lasting is achieved just rearranging things. And in our section, Solomon is carrying on with this same question. And he's bringing some new evidence to the table. And he's bringing it especially from his own experience to persuade us. Um, I guess, you know, we had um, one career represented already, um, Karen's medical advances. Whatever kind of sphere of life we're in, um, we, I think a lot of us spend much of our lives effectively climbing a hill towards a goal. It might, for us, it might not be distinctively career. Uh, it might be perhaps uh, you, the goal is family or financial security. It might be building just a good reputation in the community or, or whatever it is. And it's hard, it's uphill, but we keep going. And the reason we keep going is because, yes, it's tough... But somebody at some stage has convinced us that the view from the top is going to be amazing. So we get up each day and on we go. Actually, I think that is um, probably the reason why we're so interested in the testimonies of those who have made it to the top of the hill. 
And we're desperate to know if the hype is really real. And so we, we listen closely to the, the Bill Gateses or, or the Mark Zuckerbergs or the lottery winners or the, the celebrities or the friend who's just achieved partner in the firm. And we really want to know, what is it like up there? Is it true? Is the view really going to be worth it? And sometimes, refreshingly, these people are quite honest. And they say, well, actually, no. I don't think the view was worth the climb. I happen to, um, I mean, you can get illustrations from this anywhere, but I happened to switch on the radio uh, yesterday, caught um, just five minutes of Desert Island Discs. Tom Daly was on it, the, the Olympic diver. And he said what had brought him and his partner together was the fact that he had just won an Olympic medal, his partner had just won an Oscar, and they both experienced this similar life experience that many people report of a huge low, a massive anti-climax in their lives. And they both kind of discovered uh, that achievement in whatever sphere hadn't delivered what it had promised them. And sometimes people in those kinds of situations then conclude that maybe they haven't got high enough up the hill and they just need two Oscars or they need five Olympic medals or they switch and they try climbing a different hill. And occasionally, and this happens very rarely in life, you get some individuals who have sufficient ability, sufficient wealth, sufficient drive to make it their life's work to climb all the hills there are and to discover conclusively, once and for all, what really is worthwhile and purposeful and lasting in this life. And we're very lucky because in our hands uh, we have this testimony. The writer of Ecclesiastes, an incredible man, he was uniquely qualified for this kind of investigation, as we're going to see. He did it very thoroughly, he did it reliably, with God's help. And he did it so that for the rest of us who are still climbing the slopes, we don't have to make the mistakes. We can actually take his word for it and stop living in the delusion. And Solomon gives his conclusion right up front. It's in chapter 1. And it's in two stages. Um, It's on your sheets or on the screen. Claim number one, he says, God has deliberately frustrated this life. And then he has a second claim. And this, I think, is is relevant to us who are believers. And and we hear that and we kind of put ourselves in a separate category. Think, oh, but it'll be different for us, of course. And then he says, no, even wisdom cannot bring ultimate gain. And then he follows with uh, two bits of argument for his two claims. So that's the structure. We're going to look at each of those four chunks. And we're going to begin with claim number one. God has frustrated this life deliberately. So let's pick up. We're now in verse 12. And he writes this. Here's his testimony. I, the preacher have been king over Israel in Jerusalem and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. 
So wonderfully, Solomon had been given this gift from the Lord of wisdom, and he didn't waste his gift. He set himself the highest challenge imaginable. He wanted to to use what he'd been given and to construct a theory of everything for everyone who would live after him. And here is his conclusion, verse 13, quite short. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vapour and a striving after wind. And then he ends with a proverb. If you know uh, about Solomon in the Bible, you'll know he's a big fan of writing proverbs. He did thousands of them. Uh, And here's his proverb, verse 15. He says, What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Um, If you were to skip to chapter 7, verse 13, it actually makes it clear that it is God who has made this world crooked and God who has made this world lacking. It says, consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. And Solomon is making this claim that God has frustrated this life. And there's the the crooked nail that can't be straightened. Now, some of us, if this is uh, new, might be thinking, it all sounds a bit negative. Um, that's not the kind of God that I want to believe in. Why would God, who's meant to be good, why would he be making things hard for us? I hope you're asking that. It's a good question. And there is a form of Christianity around whose starting point is, if I'm going to believe in a God at all, it must be a God who wants me to have a nice life. And then everything else in the Christian life is then reasoned from that starting point. For example, and you'll have heard the kinds of arguments, God must want me to be sexually fulfilled, therefore, and you can work out the arguments, you know, we're going to have to change the Bible's teaching here and here, and so on. But of course, the God of the Bible, thankfully, is not an indulgent parent. He's not a God who's just there to endorse whatever his creatures happen to want at that moment whether it's good for them or not. Uh, Those of you who are parents will know that being a loving parent is not always being a yes parent. And God is a loving parent. He's one that teaches that actions have consequences. And when the first human beings rebelled, he disciplined them and he cursed this entire world. Not forever. He only cursed it until a saviour would come and find a way to forgive and reconcile the rebels. And the ultimate plan is that God will ultimately set the whole creation free again from its bondage to corruption. Uh, David Attenborough, I'm a a big Attenborough fan, um, he said uh, that he cannot believe in God because why would God create a world in which there are parasitic worms which make people blind? Um, Stephen Fry makes a very similar argument about bone cancer in children and lots of us will have seen that YouTube rant it's got millions and millions any nods, few people will have um, millions of views and if we believe in the God whose great aim in life whose sole purpose is to give us a nice life then actually Attenborough and Fry have got very powerful objections. Yes, why isn't the world better than it is? It's a good question. 
But of course, that's not really an objection to the God of the Bible. Because, of course, the Bible speaks not only of a world created good, but crucially of a world which is now deliberately under curse, God's curse. Genesis 3, a a world under thorns and thistles, a world in which there are parasitic worms and bone cancer. And there is futility, there is frustration. And these actually are exactly what you and I should expect in this age, if we're Bible believers. Uh, The the Fry and the Attenborough objectors don't really, they, they bounce off the Bible Christian, because this is exactly what we think the world should be like. But surely, we say, if I follow God's pattern, maybe this is how some of us are thinking right now, if I do what is right, if I live wisely, you know, if I read my Bible, try and uh, live in step with God, then surely, we say, life should go well. And I'll be able to break free from this kind of futility, won't I? And Solomon's ready for you. And that brings us on to the second claim in chapter 1, 16 to 18, which is that uh, even wisdom cannot bring ultimate gain. So let's look at his argument, verse 16. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. He's not boasting, this is true. Uh, He was the wisest of all the kings. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And we've seen, haven't we, if anyone in the world could tell us about the ultimate benefits of wisdom, then it must be this guy. And what is his conclusion? It's there, verse 13. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. In fact, Solomon says wisdom can actually make life worse. And he finishes with another of his proverbs. Verse 18, For in much wisdom is much vexation, much frustration. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And we're going to see, uh, Solomon's going to explain in a bit how that was exactly his experience. So, those are his two arguments. Number one, number two, God has frustrated this life. And number two, even wisdom can't bring ultimate gain. And now we're going to see him argue for these points. So let's look at the evidence for the claims. And now we're looking at the evidence for claim number one. God has frustrated this life. Now I've said, to prove his point, what Solomon did is he set about climbing every hill you could conceive of. Uh, Every hill that human beings think might be able to bring gain in this life and make life ultimately worthwhile. And let's look what he did. Chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vapour. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. It's important to to just realise at this stage, he didn't kind of temporarily become a complete fool. He didn't go on a road trip with his drinking buddies and just kind of go go mad. 
And throughout the whole exercise, he says, my heart was still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly. So he, he is testing out folly as well as wisdom as part of his investigation, but he's doing it knowingly. And he does it till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And he tries everything. He, already he's tried pleasure, comedy, uh, amusement, drinking, and yet he says none of it delivered. What does he do next? Well, he carries on. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools in which to water the forest of growing trees. Actually, that word for parks there in verse 5 is the word from which we get our word paradise. And this description here is deliberately Eden-like. You might have noticed some of the imagery, you know, filled with trees, watered by pools. And the point here, he's trying to capture this image of he tried to build heaven here. Tried to remake Eden uh, where he lived. And he did pretty well. He, He actually got closer to it, I would argue, than any of us is ever going to get. And he left nothing out of his investigations. And his conclusion, verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vapour, and a striving after wind. And here's the key phrase, And there was nothing to be, what's the word? Gained under the sun. Do you remember that word gain right at the beginning of the book, chapter 1 verse 3, what is to be gained? What ultimate profit is there? You see, God has so frustrated this life that there is no pursuit which is ultimately worthwhile and purposeful and lasting in this life. And this Eden language, this idea of trying to build heaven here, I think it's very revealing. Because if we're honest, how many of us are basically doing something quite similar. If you, someone objective examined how we spent our time, looked at our bank balances, what we put our energy into, would they say that they're base, we are basically trying to build heaven here? If I can just um, finish my training, if I can just find a partner, start a family, if I can just get the baby to sleep through, get them into school, get them through uni. If I can just get that house in Hampstead, get that promotion, (laughs) then we say, there's that goal, then at last, life will be good. I don't know what it is for us, but what, what is that? If only then, then it will be okay. And Solomon looks each of us in the eye this morning and he says, look, I did this so that I could teach you about it. I've been to the top. I've been to the top of all those trees. And they are lying to you. And you cannot build heaven here. It really isn't going to deliver what they've promised you. And I would really encourage us to not be proud at this moment, not to think that we are wiser than Solomon on this. That would be absurd, wouldn't it? And it's not simply that we need to learn some secret. It's not simply that we need, you know, to to live a more upright life. 
And this was the other point, wasn't it? Because even wisdom can't bring ultimate gain. And here's his evidence. He picks it up from verse, well, I'll read from verse 14. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So Solomon's positive uh, about wisdom. Wisdom is wonderful. I think Solomon, of all people, is pro-wisdom. He's about wisdom. But he can see that even wisdom cannot bring ultimate gain. Second half of 14, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. And he's talking there about death. Um, I mentioned uh, when I came to Hampstead it was to be at the Royal Free. I was a medic um, originally. And one of the most um, memorable parts of a first year medical student's experience is the dissection room. Um, I think it was, I'm just catching some medic's eyes. I think we all had pretty much the same experience. You know, corpses laid out on tables. Uh, for us it was four students per corpse. You get a whole year with them. And there are, you may be able to tell some things about the corpses' former lives. Um, you don't get told until the end of the year actually their names and, and their situations. So it's a kind of, you know, CSI moment. You're trying to guess. Uh, and you can guess some things. Pretty obviously their smoking habits. Um, you can make some good guesses probably about their drinking habits. Uh, but at the end of the day, whether they were wise or foolish, uh, whether you had a postman or a prime minister... So there's a slab of meat in front of you. They all look very much the same. You know, just corpses on a table. Now, in some ways, um, this guy, uh, Leo Tolstoy, um, the Russian novelist, the aristocrat, he was kind of like the Solomon of his day. Quite famously, uh, he went on a similar kind of quest of discovery. He was trying to work out what life was really all about. And it's, it's kind of spookily similar to Solomon's. First, he, he decided to go all out after pleasure. And uh, at university, he drank very heavily, lived promiscuously, he gambled. And he very quickly discovered, as people do, that that was very empty. Then he decided to pursue relationships. He met a loving wife. He had 13 children. I always think when you hear that historically, you just comfort yourself. They, they probably had like loads of nannies. It was much easier. <laughs> Don't worry. But yeah, he, it seemed that he just didn't do anything by heart. So, you know, he went all out in that direction. And then he discovered that even that was all still empty. What did he do next? He went hard after wealth and fame. What did he do? He wrote War and Peace. Now, I think it would be an achievement to read War and Peace. <laughs> <laughs> Josie has, I, I have read the front cover um, but Tolstoy wrote some of the um, most wonderful I'm told works uh, in any language and through it all he discovered that there was one question which wouldn't go away, there was one question which nagged at him and brought him even to the verge of suicide and the question was this is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Tolstoy realised that however wise, however foolish he was, it was irrelevant. Ultimately, it would make no difference. Very similar to what Solomon is telling us here. 
And now having established his case that God has frustrated this life and that even wisdom cannot bring ultimate gain, Solomon then leaves us with, you've gone through some some interventions, some hard truths, but now he leaves us with a wonderfully positive message of how we can now live wisely in this life, given what we've heard. And the positive message is there on your sheets or on the screen, and it's this. Life is about gifts more than gain. Can I say, this is a big paradigm shift for me, and it's very exciting to do. If you've tuned out, now would be a good moment to rejoin us. <laughs> I can understand it. It was quite depressing up to now, but it's going to get better. Verse 22. What is a man... From all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun. You know, he's kind of asking almost the same question as the beginning, chapter 1, verse 3. Where's the gain? Where's the gain? That's his question. And now he shows what kind of a life comes from being obsessed with that question. Verse 23. For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. I think that means a frustration. And now some additional evidence that this is an unhealthy question to be obsessed with. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Actually, you may know in the Bible that is the mark of the ungodly person. Psalm 127, the one he cannot rest. This also is vapour. Solomon has discovered at the end of this that being obsessed with this question, where's the gain, where's the gain? That is the tried and tested route, he says, to a stressed out and ultimately insubstantial, vaporous life. It's the wrong question. There is, however, a better approach to life. 24. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil, this also, I saw, is from the hand of God. Enjoy all of life as a gift from him, it said. For apart from him, 25, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Um, The first time I read Ecclesiastes through um, was when uh, Tom and I were students. Um, We both had more hair. And um, I was told, and maybe you've been told this in your reading of it, Um, That when Solomon writes under the sun, we've had that uh, repeated phrase quite a few times now, what Solomon means by that is, look, I am deliberately viewing the world from a secular perspective, as though it's just under the sun, no heaven above us, no God, I'm taking him out of the picture. And then when Solomon leaves God out of the picture, this is what I was told, of course he's going to find life very frustrating and unfulfilling. And the way to read the book is to read it like that and then to be thankful that we've got Jesus and none of that applies to us. But of course, as we read this book, we discover Solomon is not leaving God out of the picture at all. Uh, Just like here in verse 24, God is often mentioned in the book. In fact, he's mentioned, I counted it, I did the search yesterday, 40 times. Uh, Actually, more times even than Hebel. Um, And rather we discover that life under the sun really means something like life after the fall. Life in a world which has 
which God has subjected to futility, life in this age, we could put it. And, as Romans 8 tells us, that futility is is not something which is in the past for us as Christians. We're not beyond that. We haven't graduated to a non-futile world. This is the world we live in, just as much as he did, until the Lord returns. And actually, Solomon's message here about life's about gifts, recognising God's gifts rather than always obsessed about gain, that message is directly applicable for us as we live in the same world. And the fact that this is one of Solomon's big messages to us from this book, I've only given this uh, one verse, but this, uh, this is actually the refrain in different words that uh, he closes each of his sections with. So he closes this section with this bit. Uh, he does the same in chapter 5, 18 to 20. He does the same in chapter 8, 15. He does the same right at the end of the book, chapter 12, 9 to 14. He keeps returning to this one theme, what life is about. It's, it's about gifts, recognising and enjoy, enjoying the Creator's gifts to us. And the point is that he wants us not simply to redirect where we might find gain. Actually, we're going to come back to that in, in the final session tomorrow. Uh, I think we're meeting tomorrow morning. Um, and he does encourage us to, to think that there is a way we can uh, achieve gain by entrusting it to God. And in God's final evaluation of us, he's going to talk about judgment But here, he especially wants us to change our whole outlook on gain. And so instead of getting to the end of each day and we ask, what have I achieved? What have I achieved today? Where's the gain? Where's the gain? He wants us instead to get to the end of our day and ask this. What have I received? What have I received from God today? And actually learning this lesson from Ecclesiastes over the last couple of years has been very liberating for me. And I hope will be for some of you as well. If, like me, it's not something uh, you've done much of before. Um, And Solomon is inviting us to reflect upon what if life wasn't a computer game about achieving the most gain, the most number of points on the board before the time runs out. Perhaps instinctively, that's how we think life operates. What if life, rather, Solomon said, was an arena, a theatre, in which we, as creatures of a creator, get to receive gifts from a loving father? Verse 24. Ultimately, so that we can know him, so that we can enjoy him better through his gifts. He's going to develop that idea. Uh, And since I started to discover this perspective from Ecclesiastes over the last couple of years, I've tried to think a little bit differently about my day. Ordinarily, uh, you know, end of the day comes, Josie will ask me, you know, how was your day? And what I would do is run through a kind of mental checklist. Well, what were my goals for today? Did I kind of tick them off? How frustrated do I currently feel? And um, how my day had gone was really just an assessment of how much gain I'd accomplished with respect to those goals. And I think Solomon is saying here, a much more helpful way to evaluate our days is to run through what gifts have I received. Yesterday has had, yes, today, not yesterday. Yes, today has had all kinds of uh, challenges. uh, You know, I could list the frustrations. 
But actually, when I think about it, there have been plenty of things that I can be thankful for. And God has shown his kindness actually in all kinds of ways, even amidst the frustrations of the day. One of the things we uh, try and do at tea time in our house is highs and lows, um, where we each have to say that the best thing and the worst thing about our day. And then when we're on the ball, which happens less frequently than I'd like, we try and then convert the highs back into uh, thanks when it comes to the prayer time at the end of the day. I'm always nervous about kind of sharing these um, pictures of domestic bliss because they're so far from actual reality. (laughs) If if you came to our house, it's ordinarily chaos. But occasionally, these are at least our aspirations. And, um, you know, learn from our aspirations more than the reality is probably the the lesson. Um, But it's best to be trying to help ourselves, help if you've got children, you know, instead of asking how did the spelling test go and drilling in, where was the game, where was the game, um, try and, you know, have a different kind of conversation in the house. You know, what is it that you can really thank God for today? Much better question. And it's training them to be wise and humble before God. Um, I'm not always a fan of Richard Curtis films. Um, They're kind of enjoyable, but when you think about the message, they're not always very helpful. Um, I I love, however, the film About Time. came out in 2013. Um, If you haven't seen it, it's about a father and a son who can time travel back to various points in their own lives. And there's one point where the father, Bill Nye, gives his son, Donald Gleeson, this advice. He says this, Live each day twice. The first time, live it as normal with all the tensions and worries, but the second time, live it almost exactly the same, but this time, free to notice and enjoy how sweet the world can be. And then in the film, if you've seen it, we then watch the same scene in his life, the son's life, twice. The first time you watch it, he's rushing to court, he's a lawyer, he's trying to present his case, he's very stressed. The second time... He goes through the same day, a bit like Groundhog Day. He does the same thing. But this time, because it's the second time, he notices the birds are singing. He notices how majestic the buildings are, which he'd completely missed the first time. And through this lesson, the son learns a trick of only needing to live every day once. Because through doing this, he's learnt the skill of appreciating everything as if he was experiencing it for the second time. And I think Solomon, at least, would approve of that message. He's saying, learn to live each day, not obsessed with, where's the gain, where's the gain, what have I achieved? But rather, learning to live each day, noticing, and crucially, uh, which is missing from about time, crucially acknowledging God, thanking him for every gift he gives us. Now, as I say this, especially if it's kind of, new to you, I hope you're asking some questions. I hope you're thinking, uh, how does this fit in with other bits of the Bible's teaching? Uh, I hope you're thinking, uh, what, if anything, of this changes when we get to the New Testament? Um, Actually, I I mentioned before, weekends away are great because they give us a chance to kind of reflect on these big kind of uh, uh, paradigm shift sort of questions. So let me address, I'm just coming into land, you've done very well, but I do want to hit those kind of questions so that we can think, firstly, how does it fit in with the rest of the Bible, 
and what, if anything, changes when we get to the new. So let me address those two. Um, well, one reason I put on the sheets, life's about gifts more than gain, rather than life's about gifts not gain, is because, of course, there is in the Bible a right place for pursuing gain. There's a right place for pursuing profit or achievement. But also, it is not everything in the Bible. For example, look, look at the, um, you know, when God created man, he gave humanity a work to do. Uh, which he did when he told Adam to cultivate the Garden of Eden. Now that wasn't an end in itself. It's not as if God was desperately in need of some produce and he created Adam as a unit of productivity and he left him in the factory to get on with the task because God needed the widgets or something like that. No, Adam's work was always in the bigger context of Adam's relationship with his creator. So work is not the only thing in Adam's life. He's got a beautiful, fruitful garden to enjoy He's given a wife, he's, he's got a loving creator to walk with in the cool of the day. But because, of course, God himself is a worker, and we were introduced in chapter 1 of the whole Bible, as God is one who accomplishes tasks and, and then enjoys the fruit of them, naturally Adam learns to relate to God by joining God in his work. It's a bit like the, the toddler who helps his daddy or her daddy in the kitchen with some DIY now, it's not strictly, is it, because the dad needs the help, and we can probably testify to that. Uh, but the DIY, or, or the cooking, or whatever it is that they're helping daddy with, that is the situation in which the toddler gets to hang out with and gets to know her daddy better, and in which the, the toddler learns to be more like her daddy. So it's, the work is there, but it's in a different context. It's not all about the work. So imagine for a moment a father um, wearing a hat to protect the top of his head on the beach. He takes his daughters out to build sandcastles, uh, which in my opinion is a great way to spend a day, if not a fortnight. Uh, now if the child approaches the task uh, entirely from a where's the game, where's the game mentality. If they totally ignore the context of the relationship and the joy and the receiving and the learning from and growing like their parent, what kind of day is it going to be? Well, two things are probably going to happen. First, the child is probably going to get very stressed. You know, imagine if, if the only thing that matters that day is game, game, game. Then if they're not hitting their targets, or if the sandcastle isn't quite how they wished it to be, that is a disaster. That is a wasted day. And second, if, if the child's thinking like that, when later the inevitable does happen and the tide washes their project away, as it definitely will, of course the child is going to be devastated. And either they will give up on building sandcastles altogether, it was a waste of time, or they will obsess about how next time they can make sure their work is slightly more tide resistant. You know, what's my legacy going to be? Um, <laughs> and what a life to live. But now imagine if the child understands that the task, it's a good task, but it's in the context of something far more important, which is their relationship with their dad. What kind of day is it going to be? Well, of course, they'll still want to make the best sandcastle they've ever made. Of course they will. They want to grow, they want to learn, they want to use their creativity to the limit. 
Of course, if the castle doesn't quite work out right, or you know, they actually see the tide flattening it, that's going to be a bit disappointing, but it's not going to be devastating. After all, they've discovered, haven't they, that life is about gifts more than gain. And whatever happened, they got to spend the day with Dad. And best of all, he was pleased with what they made. And that's what counts. What I'm trying to do there is zoom out and thinking about what the whole Bible says about work and gain in the Bible. It's not irrelevant. Gain is is important. But it's not everything. It's always in the context of something much more important. Our relationship with our Father. What about that second question? Not just what, what does the Bible generally say, but what, what, what if anything changes when we get to the New Testament? Well, whilst there are changes when we get to the New, I would argue that this at least stays the same. Life is still, for us, about gifts more than about gain. So the labour that we do, even labour in the Lord, uh, as it's called in 1 Corinthians 15, that, that New Testament call to cooperate with God's great building project, building up a people for himself, that one sandcastle which is actually going to survive the tide coming up, even that is still not ultimate. You see, God is not limited in his resources. He doesn't need our efforts. And any way we get to partner with him, even in gospel work, that's still like toddlers helping in the kitchen. It's still for our benefit and not his. We're not units of productivity. We are children who get the privilege of joining in with our father's project. In fact, this message of Ecclesiastes is one which gets picked up and then reinforced in the New Testament. Uh, For example, 1 Timothy 4, um, there's some false teachers at that time who are forbidding marriage, they're requiring abstinence from various foods. And Paul, the apostle, and he's echoing here Solomon's message about marriage and food that we're going to see in Ecclesiastes. Paul states that God created marriage, God created food, specifically to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So as we close, if we are believers, I hope lots of us will remember that moment when we first discovered our salvation is all of grace. Do you remember that? You just were blown away. Salvation is sheer gift. You could just were bowled over by it. Well, how wonderful it is to discover that God, our creator, has the same way of operating as God, our saviour. And even our day-to-day work of our lives of working and eating and sleeping are first and foremost an arena of grace. God has put us here. We're in a place deliberately so that we can learn to receive gifts in thankful dependence on our Creator. I'm going to pause there. Um, I've actually put some questions for you. Um, There will be opportunity for you to question me, but each session there's on your sheets um, some for you either to discuss or or reflect on for your own. Um, 
I'll lead us in prayer and then over to Tom. Thank you, our Father, that uh, for the honesty of your word, that you, you press our nose into the reality that climbing the hills, trying to achieve ultimate gain in this life is not possible in a, in a cursed world. And yet thank you for then lifting our eyes to show us what a wise and humble response to that is. Uh, to be discovering that uh, we are creatures who can still receive gifts joyfully and bring glory to you. He can still bring uh, pleasure to you and live humbly in your world. Father, help us to be thinking through what this means for us. We're not units of productivity, but we are children of the Heavenly Father. Help us to, to make these changes in our lives that reflect um, uh, our understanding of this, we pray. Amen. Amen.